0: you're listening to a rock candy podcast.
1: Hey guys, my name is Matt Langston. I am a music producer, a mix engineer, and an, Avid unicorn enthusiast, and I would like to invite you over to my podcast, Eleven D Life. On Eleven D Life, we get to talk to your favorite artists, producers, and creators about what makes them tick. We take deep dives into where they get their juiciest inspirations from, and how they keep from being cynical about all of it. We even get to pull back the curtain on my band, Eleven D Seven, and share some fun insider tips and tricks for our fellow bandmates and creators out there. So be sure to check out Eleven D Life right here on the. Rock Candy Podcast Network and wherever you get your
0: favorite shows. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Dante Amadeo Salamone, and you're listening to the Rock Candy Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Steven and I had a duel to the death, and I vanquished him to become the star of this show. And while I commend you for the theory, in reality, Steven was feeling a bit under the weather this week and asked me to step in. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dante, aka Llama Boy, and I'm the producer for this podcast. In this week's episode, Steven interviews Mandisa Thomas, the founder of Black Nonbelievers. Steven and Mandisa talk about what it's like to be an atheist minority, as well as the complications that come with being a black nonbeliever. They talk about racism in the atheist community minority representation the black church in america and much much more if you want to support steven and his work you can go to patreon.com to leave a donation of your choice as for those who have donated you are steven's personal lords and saviors and he thanks all of you if you want to take part in the community of sacred tension there's a link in the show notes to steven's discord as well as a link to steven's patreon now with no further ado i give you steven's interview with mandisa thomas mandisa thomas Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So
1: when I sent out a call to my audience about who they want to have on the show next, you were one of the top names that came up. And so, wow. I'm, <laughs> yes, you were. Everyone on my Discord server was like, "You have to get Mandisa." So I am so glad you're here. This is a highly anticipated conversation. People love you. Oh, um,
2: well, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, they really, really do. And so, just tell us some about who you are and what you do.
2: Yes, yeah, so I am the founder and president of Black Nonbelievers, mm. which is an organization headquartered in the Atlanta, Georgia area, and I most recently became a humanist celebrant. So in addition to running the organization, I also serve on a few boards, um, namely the American Humanist Association and American Atheists. So now I also have the ability to perform and, and uh, officiate services that the people in our community actually need or and, and could utilize. So mm. much of my work does uh, focus on increasing the visibility for blacks who are atheists and also questioning religion in favor of leaving, as well as, you know, just encouraging open, unabashed unapologetic expression of our position, uh, because as we are dealing with still a very, very challenging task within the Black community in particular, seeing as how it's still very highly religious, it's important that we create these spaces and uh, communities for for each other that we can not only network, but also advocate for ourselves and others.
1: Mm. So, and and I, I think a lot of people in my audience are probably familiar with you because of TST and some of the conversations that you've had publicly with Lucian Greaves, our founder. How did that relationship come about, just out of curiosity, with uh, with the Satanic Temple?
2: As TST um, started to gain ground, of course, I always had a respect for the work, and I will, I, I love blasphemous stuff anyway. But, absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> I absolutely do, so. So um, Lucian and I actually spoke at the same conference in 2015, which was the Atheist Alliance of America's conference that was in Atlanta. And he actually bought one of our shirts. Uh, He bought a BN shirt. Um, And so we've had... You know, conversations since then And I've known others along, you know, in uh, in my work Who have been affiliated with, you know, the Satanic Temple in some way Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he and I uh, recently spoke together At 2020 uh, Free Thought Festival in Madison, Wisconsin I think that was Free Thought Festival 9, if I'm not mistaken So he and I have um, been in the same space before yeah. And I've had others, you know, from the TST who have uh, interviewed me and, uh, and, and so we've had sort of a working, you know, relationship in, you know, uh, sort of, you know, working alongside each other mm. with, uh, with our missions.
1: That's fantastic. And yeah, I, you know, I, I think I first encountered you by listening to his interview of you on his Patreon and it was fabulous. It was great. Thank you. So you, you said something a minute ago that was really, really interesting, which is the, the challenge that you are facing as a humanist, as, as a black atheist organization leader within the black community, because the black community is so very religious Talk some about that.
2: Yes. So (laughs) I'm going to probably get into my background a bit, but um, please do. You know, so I'm originally from New York City, born and raised. And, um, you know, I actually wasn't formally raised religious. And even though New York is a very densely populated city, there's a lot of diversity there uh within the black community um much like within the united states uh, there's still a very high presence of of religion and so that wasn't lost on me growing up um i uh, fortunately had parents who did not you know they 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 sort of re- they they rejected the christian ideology in particular and so that's how my brothers and i were raised my siblings and i were raised and uh i learned early on about how christianity in the church had an effect on the black community uh, which does stem from you know um you know africans uh, being enslaved in this country and having to pretty much adapt to Christianity. And also the fact that once slavery and reconstruction ended, that the church became a primary uh, sense of support, a primary support system for many within the Black community. Um, There is a lot of close identification with the church historically, um, especially as it relates to Human rights, mm, mm-hmm. racial justice within the Black community, and and such. So we don't take anything away from that. However, um, the challenge that, or you know, what we tend to push back on is the fact that Christianity is very instrumental in instituting race, uh, racism. Mm. and and racial injustice, and also being very complicit in white supremacy. Mm. So there is this very paradoxical relationship that the black community has with the church in particular, which makes it very, very hard to break. It makes it very, very hard to um, actually have those conversations, both within the black community and within in, in secular spaces. In non-religious spaces within um, within our organization,
1: that's really really fascinating. And you know, I'm super ignorant about this issue, and so correct me if I'm wrong about this. But you know, as one of one of my biggest concerns about being an atheist, but also being a member of TST, is the lack of racial diversity within these spaces. And you know, as because I know what it's like to be a gay man in a space where there isn't representation. And I know that there are a lot of people who kind of, you know, I don't know, poo-poo the idea of representation, that it's not important. It's fucking important. And it's important for me as a gay person to feel like I can be represented and heard and understood and not that that is not the same thing as being black at all but i it, it gives me a point of reference to understand right and so that's one of the things that i do really worry about within tst and within the atheist community as a whole is the lack of the the lack of racial diversity and as i've thought about it i really wonder if a lot of it has to do with the nature of of privilege and i i wonder sometimes if if religious doubt, if things like religious doubt and skepticism uh, is a matter of privilege, it's a luxury, right?
2: Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. So there's a lot to unpack there, which could probably take up about a few hours. But
1: <laughs> Let's do it.
2: Certainly, yes. You as um, you know, a gay man I- I can absolutely understand that. But someone who's black and gay would have, that's two strikes. Would have an even... Them. Yeah, and this is the right. idea
1: of like intersectionality. Mm-hmm. For, for people who Absolutely. don't for people who don't know about intersectionality, by the way, it's exactly what Mandisa just said, where it's like a black man and or a black gay man is like that that man is standing at the intersection of two minority it's mm-hmm. like it's like two cars coming at him at once. Okay, right. but then let's say black gay woman, mm-hmm. well, now we have like a three way intersection. Right, and, and those and, Atheism
2: yes. on top of that, yes. So right. I think the more we intersect, um, the 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 less some people who are in a privileged position tend to understand. Mm. And it's you know part of it is our part of it is our upbringings and not having to even con- you know not having to even consider what other people go through. And that tends to be the case with many white atheists. The problem, even if you didn't go through it, is when, you know, those represented individuals and and groups are explaining and expressing what those challenges are. Um, There's often, you know, people often get defensive, people often get, you know, they Mm. they tend to try to, you know, also try to espouse their skepticism there too. And that isn't always effective because is Yes, there is plenty of evidence that institutionalized racism exists and that it has impacted negatively the Black community and other marginalized groups. But unfortunately, it seems like when it comes to the question of, you know, of God or state church separation, somehow that tends to get lost or it's seen as not being as important to other, uh, you know, to these organizations, which makes it very difficult for, you know, Black folks who want to be a part of, you know, TST yeah. or, and other organizations to feel like they are welcomed in, you know, in those differences and in those experiences because they are important. Mm. And it's important that an organization acknowledges and addresses what is going on, especially mm. regarding racial justice uh, and how there is a disproportionate, how it disproportionately effects um of the marginalized communities and so when Yeah. yeah when these organizations fail to do that and and they also are still trying to be the gatekeepers of this information meaning that if there are all of these white people speaking on it and they are they are actually not looking to and actually supporting the people of color in their in their organizations then that's a problem and that's going to keep more more people of color from you know, from engaging in being a part of the organization. And that's just the bottom line.
1: Yeah, I, I guess what I'm hearing you say is if if people of color or trans people, gay people, you know, in general, like minority groups look at, say, a humanist organization or TST and are met with skepticism about their experience. Then that is a big red flag. A absolutely, and then mm-hmm. B, if they don't feel like the organization is actively taking ta- taking not taking the blame, but taking responsibility.
2: Absolutely, you know they're, yes.
1: they're, that's something that I want to tell people all the time. It isn't about taking the blame; it's about taking responsibility. That that's a huge thing that's been really helpful for me. And if they if they don't see that organization actively acknowledging and addressing. Systemic issues, then that is also a red flag, and and so it's like those two fronts: that that skepticism of experience, and then that lack of acknowledgement.
2: Absolutely, and I would actually add one more thing because mm. you know, from an organizational standpoint, I see more organizations acknowledging. You know, they they um, they talk about Black Lives Matter. You know, they, they, they are speaking up on those those issues. But if it isn't inactive, if it isn't implemented within your organization, you know, people of color are being treated in a way that is you know not affirming or it isn't repre- you know it isn't replicated in leadership then that's also a problem because mm. it's one thing to say it publicly but to institute it organizationally is more important and yeah. not and not just beyond the one or two people you know uh, the one the one or two people of color see you know see we have this one person so <laughs> and, and it's sometimes it's the ones who mean well that end up causing a, a more <laughs> causing harm so listening to us and actually acting on what we advise organizations to do would would be a huge improvement
1: yeah that reminds me of like organizations like amazon saying black lives matter or you know mcdonald's having the the um or or was it burger king it was
2: star uh, was it starbucks starbucks too the training yeah yeah yeah
1: well well the training but also they they do this with lgbt as well where it's like they 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 will put a a burger in like a rainbow wrapper and and i'm just like (laughs) and i'm like (laughs) fuck Yo, like until you start paying employees well and treating the environment better and and actually doing things to to care, to to demonstrate instead of just capitalizing off of the symbols that have been hard fought for. Absolutely. it, It drives me fucking crazy. It, it's right. like flames on the side of my face and they do this all the time with gay pride and Absolutely. And, yes. and I saw the same thing when like Amazon posted you know put Black Lives Matter as their banner and I'm like fucking Amazon they have you know literal like torture sweatshops in Alabama mm, and yeah. and disproportionately employ people of color in a lot of underprivileged settings and I'm like fuck you <laughs> Anyway... That was a rant. Right.
2: Well, but... no, that's fine. You are at, that is absolutely what and, and for many black folks when we see, you know, well, you know, when we see the what is now considered performative, right? We see a lot yes. of people saying things, but when it isn't again reflective in, you know, in leadership, when it isn't effective, when it, when we when it when we don't see it reflected in how, you know, in the distribution of, you know, their resources, mm. you know, in the, in a sustainable way, yes, then it becomes it becomes lip service. And sometimes, you know, we find ourselves looking like, hmm, here we go again. You know? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I mean, yeah, I I have that.
1: I have that exact same experience with with LGBT and gay pride all the time. So it sounds like there is I'm contemplating that paradox that you were talking about at the top of the show between the ways in which christianity and the church within the black community has been absolutely kind of central to human rights and you know along those lines i think of people like oh what's his name um uh cornel west who mm-hmm. <laughs> really really connected to the church i don't know maybe you have a maybe you have different views of him than i do but i i like him. I really, really like him. Yeah. And,
2: you know, I don't I don't take away, you know, um, Dr. West's scholarship as well as his popularity. It's just very, very interesting. And he's actually pretty receptive to atheists and yes, non-believers.
1: He is. Yes, he is. I've been really it's just, impressed just, by that. It's just
2: always interesting to me that for a man of his scholarship and his stature and his intellect and intelligence, mm. he is still a hardcore believer. Yes, he is. You know, I mean, it's 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 very interesting to me. You know, I respect you know the the choice or what have you, but just the fact that even in amongst black scholarship and you know and, and in the academic world hmm. and just in the black community in particular, that you know there are so many who will still make it seem as if it is impossible to be black and to be atheist and and humanist at you know and. And be a part of this community, hmm. and and that's that's what we that's what we are facing. Um, in fact, one of the the same event where I met Lucien for the first time, uh, there was a Women of Color and Ministries conference taking place. <laughs> in the same in the same facility. What was what was
1: the name of the conference?
2: Women of color in ministry. Okay. And so there were also other there were there were other events taking place. Um, a lot of black religious folks there, and interestingly enough, you know, we met some. You know, we met some really nice folks there. But there was this one woman who jumped in my face, and she was horrendous. She had the nerve. She I mean, she said that she could not believe that as a black woman that I had the nerve to identify as an atheist in front of these white devils. She wow. also that I had a slave mentality that I, she felt sorry for my mama and my kids. All right, yeah, she represented like everything that like that like, that we deal with at times.
1: So <laughs> pause. <laughs> uh-huh. Hold on. Okay, I cannot hear that as anything other than racist. Being told you have a slave mentality?
2: Um but this is yeah, this is another black woman. This was another black woman who was saying this to me. That's awful. I mean, yes. That's
1: terrible. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: absolutely. <laughs> that's, it was. That's
1: unacceptable. I mean, wow. So why why is that? Why is there the is, is there this assumption that atheism is fundamentally white? That atheism and you know, I, I definitely think that there's the stereotype of like the the white douche logic bro mm-hmm. <laughs> as well. <laughs> and why why is that?
2: Well, again, uh, we, that goes back to the very heavy influence that the church and religion has on the black community, mm. as well as the still lack of representation amongst us. So there have always been humanists, free thinkers and atheists within the black community, mm. But we're still very much smaller in number. And because most black religious folks still uh, associate God with good and understandably, you know, the aspects of racial justice, racial injustice and white supremacy, that the overwhelming number of, you know, white represented um, nonbelievers would lend itself to you know, misinterpretation and misrepresentation, hmm. and within the black community is seen as well. That's only something that white people do, even though the religion that they follow is a direct result pretty much of white evangelicalism. So it's like, you know, hmm. there's a very interesting, you know, when we talk about being godless and being evil, it isn't atheism that represents that, right? But these are the things that we're combating and that. In our communities, this is this is something that most white people don't have to think about when it comes to the black identity and what it means. It's like we're rejecting our blackness mm. to, to so many. There, it's a it's a perception that we're pre- rejecting our blackness and our, our identity as you know as a people. And not just that, because yes, race race is a social construct. It's a racist construct that was created. In order to declassify blacks, let's 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 just go there for a moment, right? Absolutely. But um, but also, it's this notion that we are rejecting the history of the black community, that the church represents you know us in its in its uh, in in our entirety, and that there have never been those who have dissented, those who have questioned, and that just simply isn't true. You know, there's a long history and of, of 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 notable Black folks who have questioned religion in the church, and this this uh, this does you know a disservice to black folks and white folks who didn't know this information. I can't tell you how many times that I bring up Dr. Carter G. Woodson's name, who is the founder, basically, who was the foundation of Black History Month, and most people don't know he was a free thinker. Most Mm. people don't know that he actually critiqued and challenged the church. So Mm. this is information that is good for all of us. And so this is what we, you know, when we redefine that narrative and we disrupt it, this is our existence, our very existence does that.
1: So when you try to combat this. this, this tie between theism and the black community and, and kind of that deadlock that you're describing there. How do you go about doing that? One way that I'm hearing you say that is, is just by existing and disrupting that narrative and pointing out figures in history who have disrupted that narrative. So that's one way I'm hearing you say you disrupt that, but what are what are some other ways?
2: Yes, yeah, so uh, Black Nonbelievers, as an organization is very event-oriented. So we host a number of events that are um, primarily for our members, but they are open to the public. You know, we have discussions about the challenges that we face especially as black atheists and those who are questioning religion we also host informational sessions we have guest speakers last year we hosted a black family discussion about Christianity and white supremacy and uh and and it's uh you know and how they are very closely tied together where we had guest speakers and moving into the future and what that looks like so um, we also again uh, for those who you know can't see me I, I wear you know my my being apparel, you know. So when people ask me about the organization of my position, you know, I speak up. Mm-hmm. And this is a, and we encourage and we advocate for people to speak up if they can. Because this is how we dispel. Even if there may be times where there's pushback, some people might be nasty. It's about getting up the courage to stand up for yourself, hmm. and also to stand up for those of us who offer that support and advocacy. We are also we also work with other organizations. You know we um, we recently co-signed, uh, uh, co-authored a letter with the Freedom for Religion Foundation to Representative Clyburn in South Carolina, um, protesting the. Um, a bill which sought to have lift every voice and sing as a part of, you know, a national anthem. And it's it's very, very religious and it doesn't entirely represent the black community. And so it would be, you know, it would just be absolutely ridiculous mm. and atrocious to have such a, a a song represented that's supposed to you know, where there's supposed to be, you know, church state separation, um, you know, mm. and, and separation of religion and government. But unfortunately folks have gotten away with that for so long. So we absolutely do work with other organizations to advocate for the non-religious community and, uh and also, um, like, and also other, you know, human rights uh, initiatives like the LGBTQ community, reproductive justice, of course, racial justice, and and so this is how, as an organization, we um, how we how we operate. Uh, we are definitely a um, event and community based organization, but we also um, speak up and we make ourselves known. Um, in any way that we can.
1: I think that's fantastic. Talk some about the connection between American Christianity and white supremacy because it's like that's the other side of the paradox with the church, right? With the black church where it's like on the one hand, the black church has been instrumental in, in furthering social justice and equality and civil rights. On the other hand, it's like Christianity is deeply tied to white nationalism. So talk about that. Mm-hmm. Talk about that side of the paradox and And how does that relate to the black church?
2: Yes. So, uh, of course, it does, again, start with the transporting of um, Africans to this part of the world, um, whether it is the Caribbean or the United States. And there were laws put in place where um, you had to be deemed Christian. So um, there were laws on the books in Virginia, and there's a good documentary on Amazon Prime, speaking of, <laughs> called mm. Holy Hierarchy, uh, the Religious Roots of Racism in America by Jeremiah Kamara. And so in, you know, in declassifying, you know, the enslaved and their descendants, there wa- it was necessary to institutionalize, you know, these systems that kept Blacks at a, you know, at, at as a underclass, hmm. also this, um, you know, this notion of basically accepting your suffering. Because even if you've ever watched uh, Roots by Alex Haley, the docu-series, mm-hmm. you see that there were, you know, sermons amongst the enslaved in which... The passages of, you know, um, of, of God basically ordaining or making it OK for blacks to be enslaved. They were um, they used passages to justify that.
1: And, and to clarify, these are sermons being preached among the mm-hmm. black slaves, not by the white slave owners necessarily, although it was implanted by them yeah right. some that, were that actually okay
2: some were actually preached by okay the um the, the white slave owners but of course um you know there were uh black you know pastors or slave slave pastors mm. who were you know who were of course utilized to of course. you know to to hold services and and such but even as like the like the African Methodist Episcopal Church was formed um, by uh, Richard Allen like at the end of legal slavery it was a way for blacks to worship and come together when they were being kept out of white churches mm. <laughs> you know when they were so you know and and also one thing that we need to remember is that on the other side, the Ku Klux Klan, when we talk about Christian nationalism and white nationalism, the Ku Klux Klan is a Christian organization. And they were it powerful
1: and powerful. Yes. yes,
2: absolutely powerful. And so on the one hand, you had both of these, you had you had these factions of quote unquote God fearing and God loving believers, um, but you had some who were using their, you know, their, their religion to, you know, intentionally cause harm onto others and actually ordain it as a their mission from God. Yeah. And so this has again become so institutional when uh when you know when slavery was ended, and I'm not speaking here as an, an expert on this, but you know, certainly having information that other people can can research. Um when when we talk about the the um the creation of the Jim Crow laws after Reconstruction, which effectively disfranchised blacks, therefore um therefore trying to make a uh, you know, the community so codependent on the system, but also being disproportionately affected by the system. Mm. uh where folks were kept out of jobs kept out of neighborhoods kept from advancing um even and also having property and and also having um resources deliberately destroyed so um and th- and this narrative that you know black folks are lazy you know we can't do anything on our own has just manifested itself in uh in, in a lot of people's minds and how they and how they think of black folks mm. whether they realize it or not so yes. it's a whole, it's a very, very ugly cycle and mm-hmm. system that we're dealing with here, as well as a religion that has reinforced. This dependence on, uh, you know, a a religion that basically, you know, encourages suffering, you know, um, and encourages dependence on an afterlife, which has also manifested itself in, you know, the way the black community does tend to, which is changing now, but how the black community tends to Ignore certain you know other aspects within our community. Um. Now we, we see that you know even with the COVID pandemic, you know COVID nineteen, the black community has been disproportionately affected in other areas of of uh, public health. The black community has been disproportionately affected, and part of that is due to this systemic um systemic racism and also access yes. to better to better healthcare and to mm. to better resources. So it's a it's it, this is a this is a, this is a huge subject that it would do uh, a lot of folks a, a lot of good to actually do some research on yeah. and, and to, to know more about so like i said we could I, we could be taught we could talk about this for a whole <laughs> lot longer for days and days <laughs> and days no and it really <laughs> is
1: like a a lifetime commitment for people to really invest in learning about this stuff and it, it isn't something where for for listeners uh it isn't something that you can just like you know read a book and be like oh, okay I got this now or <laughs> you know study you know look into it for a few months and be like okay I got this now no it's it's really it, the these issues are so deeply intertwined and so systemic and so deep that it it really does take a commitment to long-time learning to to get it so I'm curious to hear what are your experiences of racism in the atheist community if if you have any what so so there's obviously racism within the christian world do you encounter racism in the atheist and humanist world and if so what does that look like?
2: Oh, so yes. <laughs> so of course, racism isn't as overt as it used to be. Of course. So a lot of it is very subtle. It comes out in microaggressions. Mm. And I would say one of the most glaring examples was when I spoke at a convention in 2013 in Toledo, Ohio. Organizers were absolutely fantastic. Most of the, most of the attendees were fantastic as well. My presentation was on what the secular community can learn from the hospitality industry, because I am a Hospitality professional mm, or mm-hmm. I was Up until three years ago when I um, Took my activism full time mm-hmm. So there was a question From a woman in the audience a white Woman who asked And, and she prefaced it by saying that she Wasn't sure if this was the right form For this but she asked what Was our organization going to do on black About black on black crime and she Cited um you know the, the the Crime in Chicago And how out of hand it is so what did we plan To do about that but you're and you're not Uh
1: you're not in chicago
2: right (laughs) and also how is this just our problem to fix
1: yes yeah exactly
2: and so that was very very racist
1: of course
2: um and so i often you know i often face challenges with i mean i could say something of absolute importance but as soon as someone white says it you know it gets more traction Mm
1: mm-hmm could you and, give some uh, examples of that?
2: Oh, you know, there's just so many, um, you know, I mean, I there there are like different, you know, it's interesting because like, for example, um, you know, we did our Black family discussion about Christianity and white supremacy and Andrew mm. Seidel, who I love dearly from the Freedom From Religion Foundation, you know, he did a um, he did a YouTube talk about Christianity and white supremacy and it got so much more. It got so <laughs> much. And now he referenced that. He prefaced yes. it by saying that he we, people should take a look at our YouTube discussion. Yeah. But it's like as soon as, you know, someone white and most likely male says it, it's like all of a sudden now people tend to give it more credence.
1: <laughs> yeah. Suddenly it goes viral. W- a- right. As if as if they were as if they were the ones who had the idea.
2: <laughs> exactly. Like example for the Me Too movement. Now the founder right. and the creator was Tarana Berg, who was a black woman. Yes. But as soon as Alyssa Milano started hashtagging Me Too, people were like, oh that's when it, it, it goes went viral. viral. That's when people thought she was responsible for it. And you know, they say, No, 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 no. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) so I, i i tend to you know not tend to but i have experienced that on a number of occasions in this movement so yeah 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 that's
1: and and there's a psychological toll to that of continually i can imagine of feeling continually invisible and saying saying something that is true that is close to your heart that is important and then watching someone kind of white and male and adjacent to you also saying it and then it's suddenly blowing the fuck up I can imagine yeah. how that would after a lifetime of that be really, really difficult.
2: Right. And so in trying to understand what that feels like for most black folk, especially in predominantly white spaces, and and already having to deal with, you know, issues within our black communities of, you know, mm. Of finding our own identity and being comfortable with that, you know, we are always we seem to be always be at this intersection, and it doesn't mean that we're being persecuted. It's just always a challenge. It's just always something that we have to that we always have to fight against, and it does become tiring. It becomes very frustrating. It's you know, it's exhausting, and so this is what keeps um the black folks from coming back to these spaces if they constantly have to do that.
1: Yeah, because it's like the that uphill battle just eventually isn't worth it. Absolutely. And, yeah. And so I, my suspicion is that there are probably a lot of people who might not understand why that first example you gave of, um, you, you know, the white woman asking, well, what are you going to do about the black-on-black crime in Chicago <laughs> as mm-hmm. if you are, as if you as a black woman are personally responsible for it and as if the black community is responsible for it when the reality right. Right. It's a systemic big issue that's way bigger than the black community.
2: And also it ignores this idea that most crime is intra-racial. Exactly. So are are your secular organizations gonna exactly. yes. going to do yes. anything about white on white crime? Are y'all going to do anything about the meth issue, you know? Exactly. They are are y'all going to do uh you know, what are y'all going to do about, you know, what were y'all going to do about this this president that just left office, you know? What I mean, now It's just, you know.
1: (laughs) So so explain. My suspicion is that there are probably people in the audience who don't get why that is racist. Mm -hmm. Put it it in as clear a way as you can (laughs) as to. Why why people should not ask that question of their of their black friends?
2: (laughs) Uh, Right. Because, again, for one, these systemic issues, that's not to say that even if we didn't get, you know, even if um, there was no enslavement, that there wouldn't still be crime. But when we are talking about the disproportionate number of blacks who have been affected by systemic racism and injustice, it is not just up to black folks to just resolve that because we certainly didn't create the problem absolutely and this idea that again you know that all black folks it, it's also an implication that you know that that all black folks are are just are just committing crimes yeah you know that that is a that is another very, very, um, racist implication is that Mm. we're just supposed to do something about these problematic black folks because y'all are incapable of doing anything else. (laughs) And so Mm. there's so many negative reinforcements that come along with that. And so many presumption, Mm. um, to, you know, to, to, you know to you know it it really just shows a detachment from reality and also putting like i said putting black folks in the same box
1: yeah it i can also see how it assumes that black communities are policed in the same way as white communities right
2: Exa- right exactly like right
1: like the <laughs> <laughs> the, there there's basically like this military occupation this invasive military occupation of black communities across america in a way that white communities simply don't see or, right. and and mm-hmm. experience and and so it's assuming that the arrests are
2: equivalent are, right and that they're yeah. justified which as we can see especially as you know the deliberations of the George uh, Derek Chonaben uh children trial, yeah. that the arrests aren't always justified and they've been, you know, overly, there's been a lot of over-policing, yep. there's been a lot of police brutality, and so yes, it presumes that all of these, yeah, all of these arrests are, are justified um, against, you know, against the Black community. So mm. there's there's such a criminalization and and an aspect to, you know, the police system that really is broken, that is often ignored.
1: How does christian theocracy intersect this is something that i found myself wondering a lot lately is how do how does christianity and policing and the racist manifestations of that in black communities mm-hmm. you know toward towards the black civilians who are just minding their own fucking business is there a tie there between fundamentalist Christianity and that ideology and policing?
2: There absolutely is. When there is this idea that, you know, you are God's chosen people and you Mm. have to tame these savages, you know, um, and oftentimes, in especially in American Christianity, and also when it comes to the subjugation of um, people of color throughout the world, there is this idea that you know we are we are the savages that need to be tamed, and to you know they need to be doing their God's will in order to control us or destroy us. Mm. And so this has again it it when it has been um, you know when when those when it when it has basically been incorporated into. You know these systemic structures within the united states which again has you know just declassified and dehumanized the black vote mm. it becomes easier and then also when you don't see when you don't see them as you don't see us as people it becomes easier for you to you know for you to justify that belief and also you know and also um commit harm onto them and onto yes. us so when you have this, you know, Christianity has unfortunately created like a superiority complex in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so, again, when they feel like it's their duty to, you know, do their God's will by you know by by doing this this is this is absolutely how it goes hand in hand and it's Mm. certain that certainly has been the case there are still a lot of uh, police um, departments who have um, in God we trust on their vehicles
1: like in my very very small mountain town here and actually I just drove by the police department and they had the the thin blue line flag and then mm-hmm. they had a, another r- thin red line flag and i don't know what that one means maybe you know what that one means but i don't um, I, I don't <laughs> i'm scared i'm scared to look it up but yeah and you know i'm i'm reading a book right now called passing orders and it's a critical theory book about demonology in the United States, but one of the points that the author makes, which is super interesting, is how we America kind of has this conception of itself as Eden, as this holy land, as this Eden, and how their belief in demons and and so, you know, this author, like, goes into all of these different, like, spiritual Christian spiritual warfare handbooks and kind of examines them from an intersectional critical lens, and it's, it's super cool, but one of the things that they say is is the is how the border um, americ the american border and american culture they uh, uh, christian nationalists kind of see that as as Eden and there is this endless need to protect the border, the cultural border the Mm -hmm. actual physical border because they need to return to Eden they need to to recreate Eden and, and the deep sense of anxiety that comes about because those borders are ultimately permeable and that freaks them the fuck out and I see the same thing when it comes to people of color, LGBT people, so on and so forth. Is is it's like it, there's a certain faction. And I think it is also there is a huge number for whom this is uh, for whom this is unconscious of like America is Eden, Christianity is Eden, and we need to keep the snake from invading. And the snake are LGBT people who can Mm -hmm. corrupt our sexual ethics. The snake are uh, people of color who, uh, for whatever reason, deeply threaten our hegemonic understanding of the world, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Does that make sense? Am I?
2: It does. Yeah, it does. And you know, there is often a lot of fear. Hmm. There is often a lot of of there's often a lot of delusion there. Of course,
1: <laughs> absolutely.
2: But, you know, as it's interesting to see. You know, people who want to preserve this sense of purity and and this white heaven when it was often when it was a collective when it was collective white folks that destroyed heaven for a lot of people yes so you know there is a you know there there's definitely a delusion there when it comes to and and this is one of the reasons why i say white supremacy has hurt all of us Mm. because it is this idea that you know to be white is to you know, be right all the time. And that isn't true. Mm. And so yes, I there is certainly a, um, you know, there's certainly a correlation there. How
1: do you practice self care and good boundaries when you do the kind of work that you do? Like, how do you how do you stay well, emotionally well, when you know, I can imagine you deal with clueless white people on a regular basis, but you also deal with religion and I deal with and, a lot of and stuff. stuff. You deal yes, <laughs> deal thank you. <laughs> you deal with all you deal with all the things. So I guess my question is how how do you maintain healthy boundaries and what kind of outlook do you have that, that helps you to keep going?
2: So what helps me to keep going is knowing that there are people who have been helped by organization, and not just the Black folks who've needed us, also our white allies who have been better informed and better educated by our existence. And knowing that, um, you know, I have a family, you know, I have a husband, I have three children. Um, Knowing that what. I and others do is ultimately making a better world for them mm-hmm. is what helps keep me going, and um, you know just knowing that I have been helped by this, I have been further liberated, even though I wasn't formally raised religious. But to know that I found a community and that I'm still helping to build a community that, um, you know, that is is important. You know, I try to focus more on what is what still needs to be done rather than, you know, the you know, rather than the challenges, which can be difficult. (laughs) because, you know, if you've ever been an organizer and you've just dealt with people along the way, you realize that people can be very flaky. You know, they aren't necessarily consistent and, you know, they get excited about something for a certain amount of time. And then all of a sudden you get left holding the bag. But ultimately knowing that, you know, there is, there is a lot of good being done by a lot of people. And uh, I, I did take steps last year to improve my health you know i started exercising almost every day you know i i talked to my mental health professional i have a therapist so and sometimes i curse a lot too you know (laughs) i'm like you know what fuck this you know because we're not we're not perfect and there are sometimes there are there are things that are gonna piss you off and it's okay to say you know what fuck it this shit (laughs) like this shit is hard absolutely Um, I think once we come back and just continue, you know, continue to keep going and continue to maintain the focus is what ultimately helps.
1: Yeah. You know, I got some amazing advice several years ago from a guest on my show and it was, you, you know, one of my big passions is climate change. And one thing that I've really struggled with is just climate despair. Like Jesus Christ, like knowing what's knowing what's coming for, uh, especially developing countries in, in the coming decades with climate change and just how, how to not just completely shrivel up with with despair, with despair and and pessimism. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something that I've really, really struggled with, but, a, uh, a, a climate activist that, uh, that I had on the show, I believe, last year, I asked him this, like, what What the fuck do you do? How do you get through this? And he said, the best thing is to just get out there and organize. Mm-hmm. That is not even if you lose, the right. fight is worth it. Even if you lose the battle, the act of getting out there with other people who believe the same thing, who are like-minded, who and and, and fighting to to create change in the world, nothing boosts your your mood. <laughs> Nothing right. improves the despair more than that,
2: and even if it's just the smallest task, yes, oftentimes we think of activism as being out in front and you mm. know being on the big stage and making these big drastic changes, and oftentimes that that isn't how that isn't how change works, that isn't mm. how revolution works. Oftentimes it's tedious. It can be boring, and it can be something as simple as sitting in on meetings. Sometimes it's just as simple as listening to what is going on. But you got to keep doing it, and that even though because we're not depending on a higher power anymore, it's up to us as people. Mm. And that can be very that that can be um, a very very harsh reality to face. That we are responsible for this, and. Even if you don't see the big changes overnight, you know, just know that they're happening, know that they're occurring and knowing mm. that, you know, your existence does help and your participation and, you know, and your involvement helps a lot.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, there's one example that I can think of. I forget where I read this, but for years and years and years, and I, I think this was, I, for, I forget when this was, but I'm pretty sure this was post Stonewall. But for years and years and years, there was this group, this LGBT group in D.C., Who's like one cause was to it was for the Library of Congress to create an LGBT category in the Library of Congress that seems so small like right like on its face mm-hmm. that that seems so arbitrary that but seems, i
2: bet it was i bet it was a one of the hardest tasks it was hardest so
1: challenges. and it took years and it was brutal and it was slow and it was laborious but that little change helped to create the LGBT book category in bookstores and libraries ac- mm-hmm. across, across the United the across the mm-hmm. country, because once things were filtered through that category in the Library of Congress, that became a reality slowly across the country. And it's like little things like that that seem yeah. small that are hard they have won a and small.
2: major impact. Exactly. They have a major impact. Yes. Exactly. Absolutely.
1: Well. For people who want to find out more about the work of Black Nonbelievers and support what you do, where can they do that?
2: Absolutely. So you can find us on our website at blacknonbelievers.org, first and foremost. Uh, We are also all over social media. You can find us on Facebook at Black Nonbelievers. We're on Instagram at B Nonbelievers Inc. We're on Twitter at B Nonbelievers. We also have a YouTube channel at Black Nonbelievers Inc. Perfect. And um, and you can also find me at Patreon at patreoncom slash Um if you would like more information on my humanist celebrant services. But yes, to follow the work of Black Nonbelievers and support, um, please do um, please do visit us all over social media and our website. Awesome.
1: Awesome. And also definitely go get some awesome Black Nonbelievers merch from their website. So my, my birthday is coming up this year, and I want all of you to go buy yourself Black Nonbelievers merch for me. Can you do that for awesome. me, please? I want you to do that <laughs> for me. Okay. <laughs> well, is there anything? Is there anything we missed? Is there anything that you want to add or shout out?
2: Um, yes. So in September, uh, we will be uh, hosting the Women of Color Beyond Belief Conference from September 24th through the 26th. It will be a hybrid event that will take place in Chicago, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. of
2: all places, and also um, we'll be offering online streaming for the event. And this is a co-production with Black. Skeptics, Los Angeles, and the Women's Leadership Project. And uh, for those of you who are looking to get out again post, you know, COVID, if you've gotten your vaccine, we are hosting our BNC Con, which is our cruise convention this year um, in November, from November 7th through the 13th. We will have some fantastic speakers and workshops and uh, aboard the Carnival Horizon. It's an amazing experience. If you'd like to join us, uh, we welcome you to do so.
1: That sounds amazing. Yeah. Any anyone listening who wants to support that and, and wants to maybe watch the stream or whatnot, definitely do that. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It has been a pleasure speaking to you and you are welcome back anytime.
2: Thank you so much. Again, It was a, it's an honor to be here.
1: Well, that is it for our show. The music is by the Jelly Rocks and 11D7. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me and Dante Salamoni and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, Hail Satan, and thanks for listening.
0: Shows like this one, visit rockcandyrecordings.com.